we're back by popular demand. Are y'all ready for a new episode of Board on the Street? For those of you new to this podcast, this space is hosted by the Office of Multicultural Learning at Santa Clara University in the Bay Area, California, to discuss contemporary social issues and other trending topics. My name is Brunel Neville. I use he, him, his pronouns to serve as the assistant director in the Office of Multicultural Learning, which includes our Rainbow Resource Center. I'm joined by my phenomenal co-host. Hello, everyone. It's Dr. Joanna Thompson, director of the Office for Multicultural Learning, which also includes the Rainbow Resource Center, pronoun she, her, hers, or they, them, theirs. And, you know, as of November 17th, aka yesterday, the County of Santa Clara moved to the purple tier, also known as tier one, which is the most restrictive of daily functions. Given the fact that Santa Clara University is moving towards a more hybrid model of instruction for the winter quarter, our next quarter in this academic year, the difference between in-person and virtual instruction are quite topical on our campus. Now, since neither Joanna nor myself are experts on accessibility accommodations or bioethics, we invited some special guests for into this conversation. The conversation that you're about to hear is part two that we recorded with a staff member from the Markle Center for Applied Ethics here at SCU. And it should be noted that this conversation took place as of November 6th. Everything that we talked about will be relevant to that date and time. We had an amazing time recording this episode of our podcast, and we hope that you have an amazing time listening to it. So here we go. As we continue this dialogue about this idea of opening up virtual education versus in-person education, it would be very helpful to have a more ethical perspective on the implications of these decisions. So we have an amazing colleague joining us from the Markle Center for Applied Ethics who will introduce himself now. Hi, it's good to be with you this afternoon. I'm uh, Charles Binkley. I'm a surgeon and bioethicist directing the uh, bioethics program at the Markle Center for Applied Ethics here at Santa Clara University. Thank you so much for joining us today, Charles. Um, so as we think about this pandemic we find ourselves in and thinking about this from like a more broad perspective, what have successful offerings of in-person instruction look like at institutions around the country? Uh, thank you for that, Brunel. So, you know, I have my background as a physician and surgeon, and so I bring that to bear in this conversation. But I actually want to step back and sort of talk about some of the ethical principles that have to frame any sort of calculus when it comes to public health. So it's, it's in some ways, you know, the frame around this really is the ethical concern. And then what you fill, this, fill it in with are sort of the medical facts. So when you're considering a decision like that, First of all, you have to consider it from the point of view of multiple stakeholders. And it's easy to think of the stakeholders as just simply the university versus the students, but you have to think of the surrounding community. You also have to think about the repercussion to faculty and staff um, and, and, and both, both calculi, both if you open and if you don't open. Uh, and you also have to think about kind of the longevity of the university. So what does this mean uh, for the university's reputation? Uh, what does this mean for the risk profile to the university? Uh, and, and then, you know, what does it mean to future students? Because that also actually figures in. I mean, really, one of the one of the pieces of this has to do with revenue, right? So, if the if the university loses a huge amount of revenue, has to tap into other sources, then that may mean that future students can't have assistance. It may mean that you can't recruit good faculty. It may mean that you can't. Uh, develop more programs. So that all sort of feeds into this. You have to think about all these stakeholders, both the real ones right in front of you and those in the future, those potential, uh, those that, that may come about. And you also have to think about relationships rather than just individuals. But what does this do to relationships and relationships between people 
uh, both intramurally and extramurally. So that, that's sort of where I start as an ethicist is considering all of the different stakeholders. And then you want to come up with a system that's that's a, you want to come up with a system that's transparent, uh, that's equitable, and that's consistent. So whatever you decide, you want to make sure that it it, it has those things. We call this procedural justice. And and I, I just want to take a, a moment to talk about equity. So equity doesn't necessarily you know we oftentimes think of justice or equity as so we'll open the doors at the same time for everyone. But the line sometimes people are lined up differently. So those closest to the doors may have easy access. So what I think about is I want to make sure that people aren't stacked as you open the door, but that we have a system where everybody can enter at the same time. Because if you don't, that's not true equity, nor is that true justice. We may say we're opening, but if you don't have provisions for people who may not be able to get in at the same rate, then, then it's not true justice. And, th and that has to do with uh, any vulnerable population. You know, whether that be people who don't have access because of technology, it may, it may have to do with students and faculty and staff with disabilities. So you really do have to think robustly uh, about, you know, are we not just uh, sort of having this facade of justice, but are we really making sure that there's sort of a, a, a way that everybody can line up at the same time and make themselves uh, avail themselves of the learning environment in the same way, at the same time, in the same manner. And then, you, and then it also involves a utilitarian sort of consideration, right? So you want to do the most good for the greatest number, but you also want to harm the least number. And you also have to think about what, what harm means. And so there's been this sort of tendency to say, oh, you know, young people don't have as severe cases of COVID. They don't uh, die as often. You know, they tend to recover. They're more asymptomatic cases. But that doesn't, you know, that's true for the individual. But again, when you think about the multiple stakeholders, you know, if you have a student that lives in a multi-generational home, uh, so, you know, you have to take all of these things into consideration. The other thing is that each institution is going to be very different. So if you have a rural institution that, is, that has sort of um, a, a very limited uh, uh, student body, everyone lives on campus, there's not a lot of contact with the surrounding community, that sort of calculus is going to be much different than if you have a university in a city in which half of the population lives off campus or more. So really what you're talking about is the surrounding area. What, how porous are the walls of the academy, right? So how many people come and go? How much exchange is there? What, what is the reciprocal effect on the surrounding community? So what is the likelihood? What, what's the transmission? What's the incidence at that time within the community around you? Because you're not going to be able, unless you're, you can somehow completely isolate yourselves, you're, there's going to be, I mean, so my anecdote for this is I, I went to college uh, in a monastery, actually, in southern Indiana. And the, the, this is a, the, the monks have shut down. So no one comes into the church. You know, they've, they've cloistered their, their monks. And so, but they, they've sort of extra cloistered. They now have, they have, I think, 15 monks that are COVID positive, despite wow. sort of being in this, you know, very, very insulated environment, because one nurse that comes in to care for the infirmed in the community once a week transmitted it into, the, so you, 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 we, it's artificial to think that we can completely isolate ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but, but, so it's all about how many people do you contact and for how long? 
so that that's sort of the, that's the medical part of that calculation. Um, and then you also have to think about you know what's the common good, right? So you know as ethicists we always think about what is the common good. What how can we achieve what's best for everybody while while infringing on individual liberties as little as possible. And so, you know, how do we strike that balance? And there, there are always trade-offs. And it really comes down to our calculus of benefit and burden, uh, harm and benefit. Uh, and then how do you kind of consider that from all of these stakeholders using this sort of framework? And then at Santa Clara, of course, being a Jesuit institution, uh, there, there's, there's a whole different calculus. Uh, that's unique to it because it really there's this you have to care for the whole person the cura personalis and so uh, so those are the sorts of things that I think about uh, when I think about the ethics of opening um, and then you know then you sort of go through the calculus and then so what's been most successful for one institution may have been less successful for another uh, but you know some of the major components of success really has been um, the ability to socially distance. Uh, the ability to do these sort of low-tech things, uh, the ability to mask, the ability to have good ventilation. I, honestly, good ventilation is probably one of the key things. And what we're seeing throughout the country is as people, as it's getting cold and people are moving inside, uh, you don't have good ventilation. And you also look at parts of the world where the prevalence or the incidence of COVID has been less. They're typically places where people congregate naturally outside. Uh, so good ventilation, um, so uh, good hand hygiene, good hygiene in the areas between contacts, the ability to form a pod. So for an instance, if the three of us sort of built this, uh, this igloo around us or this, this sort of this insular device and we just spent two weeks together, then, then we could do anything. We wouldn't have to mask because we would have already uh, recovered uh, from our symptoms. And so you know, we could totally intermingle. And so you can take that as a group of 50. If you take a group of 50 people, you isolate them each individually for two weeks, then they could do anything uh, they wanted to with each other because they would be past the transmit. They would have either become infected and recovered and then you could, you could completely isolate them. So you can extend that to 50, 500, 5 million if you could take 5 million. And that's essentially what China has done, right? They have taken a population of people, put in very draconian measures so that no one goes anyplace else and they've, they've segregated them from the rest. So no one comes in, no one goes out. The more people that come in or go out of that pod, the greater the risk is to that pod. So, right. so that's kind of the idea uh, from a medical perspective. Um, so that, that's kind of, you know, those are the sorts of things. And then also there's testing. I, I think every successful program that I've seen uh, has had some, some uh, aspect of mandatory testing. Uh, for, and nobody knows exactly what the right number is. It's somewhere probably around you know, 10, 15% of the student body or 20% at any given time is in the process of testing. And that has to do with this long asymptomatic phase. So somebody with COVID can be asymptomatic and be transmitting to other people while they're, they're asymptomatic. And so you know, random testing, symptom checks. So anyone who's showing symptoms uh, gets isolated, gets tested. 
uh, any, and then contact tracing. And contact tracing brings in so many rich ethical issues. You know, you, you just think about, I mean, just uh, just a, a hypothetical. Just think about you know, your your counseling services on campus. If you did that in person, if one person came in that day and saw a counselor, and um, two or three days later tested positive for COVID, and then they contact traced, then whoever saw that counselor that day mm. after that person would potentially uh, be infected and need to also uh, isolate. And so what that would mean is that all of those other identities have to be turned over to a third party. And that's a loss of confidentiality uh, between the, uh, the counselor and uh, those students. And so those are the sorts of things you really have to think about. You know, are you willing to uh, jeopardize these things? And of course, you can, you can do counseling um, and you can do a lot of health services uh, by telehealth and remotely and, and telepsychology and psychiatry now. But the confidentiality piece is very important mm-hmm. um, because as we know, our identity is everything and it may be you know, depersonalized in some ways, but it can, you know, just with the way of the world now, we can certainly we can certainly fall into these categories um, that are and be profiled in a certain way. So that person has had COVID, and it it becomes sticky. It sticks to you through your medical record, uh, through your health records, and all of those things. And particularly as electronically as we're connected now, it, it becomes a big deal. So those are those are some of the ethical and practical considerations that I see. I really appreciate you sharing all of this because, especially for our listeners, many of whom are students, um, you know, just having the lack of knowledge to understand just how complicated the decision is. And for us, you know, being a part of the Office of Student Life and working with a lot of students who think that the decision should be fairly simple, right? You know, well, we need more money, things are getting better, you know, we have to be able to return to normalcy, but there's so many nuances and especially for our students who live off campus who are continuing to maybe not social distance as much, much, maybe not wear masks and, you know, just navigating those challenges and understanding it's very impactful that, like you said, when it comes down to all of these different characteristics and, and things that it, every, every part counts and every part makes a difference. I think that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, it, college students, and, and rightly so, you, you don't want to live your life, you know, worrying all the time, particularly at, the, at, at that age and at that point in the life cycle. Um, and so risk, they, you know, college students, or not just college students, but students, you know, in that age group tend to be uh, less risk adverse. They They tend to take more risks. And that's, you know, you think about as your life goes on, you know, I would, you know, I would do things in my, my 30s and 40s I would never do, you know, when I'd be, when, you know, in a few, in a couple of decades when I turn 60, but, um, <laughs> you know, like climbing mountains and things like that. And so our, 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 naturally through our life cycle, our risk tolerance decreases. So one of the things is that, um, you know, and it's, it's asking a lot to put a group of students together uh, and then saying, well, you can't really, you know, you have to social distance, you have to isolate. You know, and that becomes very, very uh, difficult uh, in a lot of ways. But, you know, I'm teaching a healthcare ethics uh, class. I've got 14 juniors and seniors uh, that I'm teaching. And it's a, it's a really great group of students. Um, but one of the things about that class that had always been so important was their ability to forge friendships within the class. 
Uh, and so one of my challenges as the instructor is to try to help them forge those friendships, both with me uh, and with each other uh, in the class, because that's, that's so important. You know, we, we, um, we, some of the faculty had this uh, exercise this summer. We had taken a class in teaching and uh, they started with, you know, if you ran into one of your students at the grocery store in five years, what would you want them to remember about your class? Like, what would, what, what's the one thing that you'd want them to remember? And, and I really thought, you know, gosh, you know, that, that has to be my, that's how I have to approach every class. You know, what do I really want them to remember in five years? Particularly, you know, as I, I told my class that, you know, I would typically show up before class, you know, 20, 30 minutes early with donuts. And, you know, if anybody wanted to stop in and chat, you know, you know, let's chat, uh, but I can't do that right now. So I try to have office hours. I try to be very available. I stay after class. Uh, and those are just some of the things that you know, we can do to forge the relationships uh, during this time. Definitely. And that impact of socialization is so important. I mean, for oh many, many young people, and I'm sure for, for, for our listeners who went to college and had, you know, moments at a university or a college, just having those relationships and those friendships and being able to learn from others and, and those social um, experiences is, is so important. And it's, it's important to be able to still try and cultivate that in this virtual setting. And I love your example of the grocery store metaphor because someone who strangely is interact with many of my teachers in grocery stores. Like, I don't know how that always happened. I always saw my kindergarten teacher in the grocery store, like so, so consistently throughout my life, not just in kindergarten, like years later, Miss Kennington. Hey, shout out Miss Kennington if you're still listening. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, we were walking down the street, um, gosh, two or three years ago and someone called up my name uh, and I did my surgery training at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and uh, it was a medical student. He had been a first-year medical student. I used to give uh, the lecture when I was a resident on the abdominal exam. That was, gosh, 20 years ago, uh, and uh, he remembered me, and he's now at UCSF as a transplant fellow, and he wow. stopped and said, you know, I remember your, you, you, you know, I remember you giving this class and teaching how to do an abdominal exam. And, you know, it's very moving, right? When people remember you and they, they remember what you did. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, and it's all, as you said, trying to replicate that in a virtual space, it's, 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 it's challenging. Um, but as we think about like, one of the challenges of COVID-19 and navigating this is that, at least for someone like me, that something like this in my lifetime has not been seen before. So um, as you, we think over like the long-term history of like various pandemics and uh, epidemics that have happened, um, what previous incidents of public health could we use to better understand and navigate COVID-19, if any? Right, I think that's a great question, Brunel. And what I would say is, I would start with principles. You know, of course, as a, as a bioethicist, principalism is sort of what we do in a lot of ways. So I would start with principles. So what are the principles that, that past epidemics have taught us that we should do during an epidemic, regardless of, you know, what it is? And the first, the first thing uh, is to listen to the experts. And not everyone is an expert. So that's probably the most basic thing we can do, is that there are a lot of people out there who know a lot about infectious diseases, and they are the ones to listen to. And there's not a lot of disagreement. I mean, any, anyone who tells you that masks are not effective against a respiratory virus, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of intuitive, right? Uh, or social distancing. I mean, these are really low-level things. So you listen to the experts. The second thing you do is you protect the most vulnerable, regardless of what's going on. 
you always look out for the most vulnerable in society and you protect them to the best of your ability. So that's, that's again, pandemic 101. Uh, the next thing is that you have, to, you have to be consistent in your messaging. You tell people what you know, you tell people what you don't know, you tell people what they can expect. You know, when I think about what, when I think about knowledge or information, particularly you know, in giving an informed consent or talking to a patient about risks and benefits of something, you know, there are really three levels. So there's, there's what I know is a risk, there's what I anticipate that I'll be able to know is a risk. So based on other viruses in the past, here are some information about this virus that I suspect that I'll be able to know. And here are some clues that I'm not yet sure what they mean, uh, but, but I think it's going to lead someplace. So for instance, early in COVID-19, we started to see these sort of long-term sequelae. Uh, and no one knew exactly what it meant because we hadn't had enough longitudinal history. So now that we've had you know, almost a year uh, and we're seeing people with long-term effects on their heart, on their brains, on their renal systems, on their vascular system, but it's one of those things that we have sort of clues about. Um, so you tell people what you know as robustly as possible in a way that is understandable and accessible. So, and, and I think consistency in that messaging across platforms is so important because that leads into the next sort of basics of pandemics, and that is public trust is everything. And if you lose the public trust, if you, you know, it's, um, it, it's not just about getting people to do what you want to, but it's all, it, it's about relationships, right? And these relationships are everything, and we don't, we sort of take them for granted, but the relationship between healthcare providers and individuals, and it really, between the health structure, uh, of the world, you know, it, it's so, you know, when we think about, oh, we're gonna get the American um, vaccine and we're gonna give it to everybody and, you know, all of us, it, it's, that's such a fallacy in terms of, you know, people travel in and out of the United States all the time. So we have to have something that's globally protective, not locally protective, it just won't work. You know, and, and what would be worse than anything would be to invest people emotionally, physically, spiritually, economically in a vaccine that doesn't work. I mean, that would be a colossal loss of public trust. So, so those are kind of the things. And then, so we've practiced for years um, pandemics in different ways. And we've practiced respiratory pandemics. Uh, everybody was sort of expecting an influenza-like pandemic. Yeah. So, so the planning was there, but there have been a few things that have made COVID very unique. And one has been this sort of latent asymptomatic phase during which people are transmissible or people are contagious. Um, it's a little bit against the infectious disease doctrine where if you're not symptomatic, you're not infectious. Like that's the whole thing. You know, you can't go to school with a fever. Well, with COVID, actually, by the time you get a fever, you're pretty far down the road if you even mount a fever. So symptom checking is a little bit of a placebo, honestly. If you already have a fever, you probably sh you're you're pretty sick, right? So you've been shedding virus for a while. It's not one of the first. We're finding this not one of the first symptoms of an infection. Uh, probably uh, malaise comes before um, uh, before fever does. Uh, there, there are artificial intelligence systems that are now trying to detect uh, infections early. And one of the things they look at is your motion 
So as people start to develop infections, they move less uh, because they're trying to conserve your body's trying to conserve energy. So, the, and then the other thing are these long-term sequelae that makes COVID very different. Um, you know, there's this whole idea of herd immunity. We'll just go out and infect a bunch of people and then, you know, then we can all do our thing. Well, you know, first of all, the, the first problem with that is the number of lives that would be lost. And, and you know, I, I have to address this specifically at a Jesuit institution because that is that would be so contrary to every basic principle uh, of of the church uh, of any if, if anyone that I would think of as you know really um, you just don't sacrifice people like that. It's just not what you do. Uh, and then the, the other piece of that of of herd immunity is we don't again these long term sequelae. We just don't know. Uh, what kind of effects. And so people are like, oh, you know, I'll go out and I'll get affected. I'll go to a COVID party. Uh, and then we find that, for instance, you know, um, I think it was at uh, uh, Penn State where a number of football players who had asymptomatic asymptomatic uh, COVID actually turned out to have, you know, fairly significant uh, uh, myocarditis uh, inflammation of the heart. Uh, and so, you know, so these are the things, you know, that, that I kind of think about comparing COVID to others. So it didn't really follow our playbook for an influenza or for a respiratory virus. It's different, uh, but there are some principles that we can convey across all, uh, anytime there's a pandemic or really anytime there's an infectious outbreak. And I, I've been reading on, I'm a big NPR fan, shout out to my fellow NPR fans, um, about the term endemic and how we have now reached that point where, as you mentioned, that, you know, the effects and the, uh, from the pandemic are, are long lasting and they're pretty much just going to be with us forever. And I'm, I just wonder, do you have like, what is your perspective on that? Because I never heard of that term before. I'm by no means a medical doctor. I'm a doctor of philosophy, of criminology. Like, that's my jam. But medical side, not my jam. So just curious as to, like, what what does that mean? What does that look like? So we typically think of endemic as, um, you know, the, 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 sort of the one interpretation of endemic is an infectious disease that has become so prevalent in the population, in a specific population, that the population has sort of learned to live with it in some ways. Uh, it's not, it's less of a burden than it would be for someone who's naive to it. So I, I think, for instance, about malaria. Malaria is endemic in some parts of the world, that uh, there's, uh, HIV is endemic. Uh, it's less so now, but at one point it was endemic in some, some places in the world. And basically it meant that the, the incidence was so high that it was just people lived with it. And malaria is probably a better example where a number of people, um, you know, I've, I've done surgery in Africa, uh, in Kenya on the Uganda border. And the number of people who, who have malaria uh, is, is quite high, but not all of them are symptomatic. And there are also different, um, different kind of bugs in the malarial field, in the malarial family. But it, I think of that. So it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an infectious disease, which the prevalence is so high in the population that the population sort of learns to live with it in some ways. Uh, and I think that that's probably, I mean, so what I'm hearing about vaccines, um, so, I, um, I, I, uh, so I, I listen to or and I, I read a lot of, I try to stay abreast of the medical literature, although I'm doing bioethics because I, particularly in the midst of a pandemic, they inform each other. And so, um, 
What I'm hearing from the medical literature about vaccines is that at best, they're going to uh, reduce symptoms uh, and mitigate symptoms somewhat and probably decrease the number of people with really serious uh, COVID, but they're not going to eliminate it altogether. It's not going to be, uh, they, they're not going to have that kind of potency, at least the first generation of them are, are not going to do that. The second is that uh, masking in particular uh, is probably just gonna need to be part of our culture. Uh, uh, it, it's just gonna be, it's just the way it's gonna be for a long time. Uh, social distancing, hand hygiene, all of those things uh, are probably going to be with us for a while. Um, you know, it, I, I'm kind of um, I'm kind of a silver lining kind of guy. Uh, and so, what are the good things that we can take out of this? And, you know, I, I agree we don't need to be scared. We need to be smart. Um, but at the same time, we also need to take this this opportunity to say, like, what have I how, what have I learned and how have I benefited from this? And I think, you know, one thing that I see is there are opportunities to connect with people that I would have never been able to connect with before because I couldn't drive to them. I couldn't travel to them. I may have never met them. You know, I've had a number of people uh, that I've read their papers and said, you know, I, I really like what you've done. Can we set up a Zoom and sort of talk through it? I really like the project that you're working on. So in my, my healthcare ethics class, uh, the class has traditionally been built around students rotating uh, through hospitals, clinics with physicians and nurses and uh, medical practitioners uh, out in the community. Uh, and then, you know, we come back once a week and kind of, you know, share what's happening and uh, think about it from an ethical perspective. And they can't do that right now. So instead, I've brought uh, physicians and patients and patients' families into the classroom and I can do that from all over the world. You know, we were talking about relationships earlier and running into people. Uh, I had one of my medical school classmates uh, come in. She's a neurologist, has a background uh, in neurobiology and just has completed breast cancer treatment. And so she was able to talk to the students very concretely about neuroethics and some of the ethical issues she faces, then also her own experience. And you know, she's in Virginia. Um, and so that's been one of the great things is I've been able to bring these really fascinating people. Um, uh, I, I have a friend uh, that clerked for Justice Ginsburg, and I'm hoping to bring him in at some point to be able to talk to them about, you know, what's it like for a judge to be asked to make these sort of these high value healthcare decisions, you know, and so somebody that would have been very hard to have gotten to come into the class just because of the logistics. Uh, I can now bring them uh, in and actually let the students ask them questions, which is really wonderful. That's great. And I think it's a good point, especially, you know, I've seen commercials and, and ads of, you know, when we return to normal. And I think we have to just accept that this is our, I don't even want to say normal because normal is relative, but this is, this is the way it is. And that we have to lean into, like you said, understanding that we're going to have to wear masks for a while. We're going to have to be a little cleaner than hopefully we have been in, in the past. You know, we just have to deal with it and, and be as safe as possible so that we're able to adjust. I think a lot of people are waiting to go back to a time. And I don't think that's the mindset where, you know, and, and who wants to go back to that anyway? We, we need to move forward and, and kind of view things in a different way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, particularly, we have to think about our our communities. And because, you know, 
for too long, we've kind of, it's been the, the rugged individual and there's nothing, there's nothing good about that, about the rugged individual. It's just, it's a fallacy anymore. You know, no one can be a rugged individual. We're all so intertwined as part of a community, whether it be virtually or, you know, physically, um, we're, we are absolutely part of a community. And as much as we can protect each other as part of that community, as we can promote each other as part of that community and really care for each other in this essential way, uh, I think the happier we all are. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, my interest in ethics really started from the question of, you know, what is a, what's a good life? You know, what, is a, what does it mean to have a, a full life? And so, you know, ethics has been sort of, the way that I see that, um, you know, played out. And so, you know, it, it begins with this idea of caring for each other. And I, I appreciate where this conversation is going because it's thinking about this idea of the rate is good, but also moving forward does not seem to look like going backwards. And so as we talked about the, the top of the presentation or excuse me, the conversation, um, institutions um, are making these decisions to have in-person versus hybrid versus all virtual education to, because they're trying to find the greatest good for their communities to help move us forward to this new reality we find ourselves. But I know in my um, research, I, I saw that some schools had some pushbacks to some decisions, especially the decision to be all virtual. Um, and I guess my, one of my questions would be like, what can institutions do to respond to people when they get that pushback because as we as you mentioned charles the the very nuanced and complicated decision making that goes into that goes into factoring these things and they're trying to do the best they can the information that they have but when people respond and don't understand or don't appreciate what they're doing how can institutions respond to that yeah i think that's a great question you know i, I kind of take it you know my perspective is always you're know, doing um, in many ways, bioethics, bedside clinical ethics. And so, you know, many times you'll have diverse stakeholders who will uh, have different views on things or you'll get pushback on something. And so I, I think, first of all, you try to engage the stakeholders early on so that everybody's invested and you kind of take them through the process. But there's some aspect to the process that's non-cognitive. So people may understand your reasoning, they may disagree with certain points, but at some point, at some, some juncture, it sort of becomes, uh, there's something else going on. And so I think you try to be patient in those situations. You try to learn and you try to listen, um, try to compromise, or you try to negotiate. But at some point you have to decide uh, what's noise and what's legitimate. And, uh, and I think you have to be very cautious about making those sorts of labels and putting them on conversations. But at some point, uh, you do have to move on. You just, you've got you to enact it. You've got to establish it. You've got to move on. It's just the way it is. And so uh, you have to have moral courage at that point. You have to be confident in what you've done, confident with your processes, making sure that everything is just, making sure that you've listened, you've explained, you've been patient, and then you do it. Uh, and then you, you take moral responsibility for what you've done. And as long as I think you've gone through the processes that I began talking about, you know, as long as you start with ethics and then let everything else kind of be the filler to that, uh, then I, I think you're on pretty firm ground and pretty safe ground. Um, you treat every voice as important uh, and you listen to them. But at some, at some point, um, if, you're, if you're not going to change minds uh, and you're not going to really influence hearts, 
um, then you just have to sort of tolerate that as noise, yeah. and especially when it comes to a decision like this. Um, I mean, there's, yeah, you, you always want to try to negotiate, I think, uh, but, but there are also boundaries to that. I think that's such a good point, even outside of this discussion of the pandemic, the work that we do in the Office for Multicultural Learning and the Rainbow Resource Center is rooted in social justice, racial justice, and doing exactly what you just said, you know, trying to strive for equity, listen to our communities and be able to differentiate the voices that are, you know, set in their ways, they're not going to change, they don't want to be on, on the train, and then the voices that want to move forward. And I think that that vision and that uh, value is so important and, and it, it's, it's applicable again, not only to the pandemic, but to the work that we all do. Yeah, and in some ways you want to have those people who are going to challenge you. You don't want to have you know, only people who are agreeing with you and think that everything you say is wonderful because it really helps to improve you know, that criticism it helps to improve, it, it brings people together more. You, you give people their voice, even if it's a voice that you know is in opposition to you. And again, you're, you try to be patient, try to explain, but when you're making such a high stakes decision like reopening a university like Santa Clara or not reopening it or any other university or whatever high stakes decision that affects a lot of people, you know, if you've gone through the right process, if you've considered all the right things, at some point you just have to do it. Um, and I've been really impressed um, with the administration, honestly. Uh, I, I think that they've done a very, very good job of weighing a lot of things um, uh, for a lot of different stakeholders. Uh, and I mean, they're, the burden of these decisions is, it's very clear to me when, when I hear them speak that they take this very seriously. And just as we look to wrap this conversation, one of our last um, questions we have being the Office of Multicultural Learning, as Joanna mentioned, we engage in conversations of social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion all the time. Um, but we wouldn't be remiss if we ask a question directly about this. So as you think about the pandemic um, and this idea of opening versus going virtual, how are decisions like this affecting communities of color? Uh, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different ways. So first of all, I think it's making people aware of the disparities. That's where we really start, all right? So again, my, you know, my silver lining, uh, we, it, it, we have to take that away. And no more so than in, with, in my part of the world, my discipline and in healthcare. I mean, we've known about these racial disparities in cancer, um, across the board, almost every disease, we've known about these racial disparities for so long. Um, and there's been a lot of, you know, scratching of heads and, and there have been really, there have been very dedicated people looking at solving these disparities, but never has it risen. It's, it's on everybody's front porch and everyone's screen when they turn on their computers. And, and so we, and it, as complicated as it is, it's really very simple. People of color get less good care. And if you get less good care, if you go to second, if you go to less high quality hospitals, if you have less robust access, if you're not treated as intelligent, if you're talked to down to, if there's these biases, and if, and if you come from a tradition with a history of being actively discriminated against, and you, you don't want to go there. Um, and so, I mean, that's really what it is. 
um, you know, we have a two-tiered healthcare system in the United States. Those who have private insurance and can do what they want to do, and those who have public insurance or, or uninsured, and they wind up going to, to less high-quality uh, facilities. I, mean, I, uh, I just wrote a paper um, in the surgical literature about there's a trend right now uh, to uh, take high-risk surgery, uh, for instance, cardiac surgery and cancer surgeries, and basically um, concentrate them in certain hospitals uh, because the outcomes are better. But that, that makes the presumption that you have access to that hospital. So that leaves out a lot of people, a lot of people who wouldn't go to that hospital for the, in the first place because they don't feel welcome. I mean, you think about Serena Williams and you know, her description of what it was like to give birth and how she was treated as unintelligent. Her concerns of the doctors and nurses were dismissed. So we really have to find culturally competent navigators to help bridge that gap, that, that social gap. And until we do, and until we have more people of color uh, in that profession, you know, nothing, nothing is inspiring, more inspiring to somebody than knowing, gosh, they're like me. You know, I, re I remember um, as a surgery resident reading, you know, I thought, gosh, nobody in surgery cares about ethics, you know, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> but, you know, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's a humanity and, you know, people in surgery, you know, give me the blood and guts and, and so I heard about this surgeon uh, at Yale, uh, Dr. Newland, and he had written this book about, you know, kind of the mysteries within and what it meant to be a surgeon in this sort of, you know, abstract way. And I thought there's somebody else like there out there like me, you know, who, who cares about this other part uh, of the person. And so I think for somebody to see someone else, it's inspiring and they can say, you know, I can be like that. In terms of specifically in the educational environment, this whole idea that I had of, you know, opening the doors is not enough. Uh, just saying, oh, okay, you know, we're going to open or we're going to do it this way. And so, you know, everybody, it, it makes so many presumptions about where people come from. People may not have a safe environment in which to learn, in which to be distance learning. People may not have the technology available to them. Uh, they may be living with multiple people in the house. I mean, there are all sorts of, we can't presume what people have and what people have not when it comes to access. The other thing is, is that we really have to imagine, you know, there's this, there's this um, kind of ethical test where we think about all the terrible people. So what would like the worst person in the world do in this scenario? So in some ways we have to stop thinking about, so you know, what has been our experience? Well, what would be the experience? What can we imagine to be the worst possible experience a student can be in? the worst possible position that that student could be in. We have to take it from her perspective and figure out what we need to do to make her feel welcome and included and have true access. So too often, you know, we think about it from our own hermeneutic, our own kind of perspective. And we don't, we have to start thinking about it more from, you know, what, what is it like for the, what we can imagine to be uh, the most, uh, most vulnerable and then start to start to bring uh, those people those individuals forward i appreciate you you know mentioning the idea and the concept of accessibility of cultural competence of affordability that's a question that we've been pondering ourselves in terms of how do we manage those issues for not only communities of color but for the lgbtq plus community and the stigma and the victimization and the trauma that many of these communities have faced trying to access health care and and like you said running up against those 
the incompetencies and, and having a lack of trust in these institutions because of previous uh, negative uh, uh, you know, experiences and, and wanting to make sure that we are doing our best that we can to be able to provide our students and our staff and faculty the resources that they need while also not putting them in a position where if they are in a household that is relatively unsupportive or dangerous, you know, trying to, to manage those safe and brave spaces in this virtual setting, which like you said, I think this pandemic has just highlighted how, how many of us are not advantaged and, and how many of us are disadvantaged and that we do have a lack of you know, support and resources. Yeah, I think our, our trans community of color is probably one of our most vulnerable populations in our country right now. Um, it's um, particularly, you know, again, I, I think I told you at the beginning of this, I live uh, in the Castro and uh, there's a large population of trans uh, men and women of color that are homeless. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, there are all sorts of, you know, being homeless is multifactorial in terms of risk factors and issues. And, uh, but I, I think that that is one of the most disadvantaged communities right now, one of the most vulnerable communities. And I think that, you know, it, the onus is on us to start thinking about them in, in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of all of these things that we kind of, you know, take for granted and that we've, we've become accustomed to. Definitely. And for our listeners, Trans Awareness Week is November 13th through the 19th, and we will be having an a great celebration through the Rainbow Resource Center and Trans Day of Remembrance. We are hosting a vigil on November 20th. So keep an eye out on that. <laughs> but this has been such an informative conversation, Charles. Thank you so much for lending your perspective and your understanding of bioethics and medicine to help us better understand. Hopefully, I'll navigate this pandemic together because it takes all of us to help think about the greatest good and hopefully the ethical frameworks that you posited for our listeners can help all of us get through this. It's been my absolute pleasure to be with you both this afternoon and I hope your listeners enjoy this. Hey everyone, we hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you want to hear more about this topic from an accessibility perspective, definitely check out part one of this episode, which is now available. We definitely want to hear your feedback on this episode. In our About bio on Spotify and Apple, you will find a brief survey. This survey is also available in our link tree on our Instagram accounts. Make sure to follow us at SCUOML or at RC underscore SCU. In the survey, you can share topics with us that you would like us to discuss. The word on the street is that you can also stop by the various virtual programs that OML and RC will be hosting throughout the winter quarter. Make sure to follow OML and RC on social media for details about upcoming programs. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.